The Guardian. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, and 24-7 support. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer code GUARDIAN to get 10% off. The Guardian Books Podcast with Claire Armistead. As we end the season of puffery, we take a satirical look at eight of the big books of the year with The Guardian's John Crace and try to digest what they reveal about the state we're in at the end of 2013. Today's digested read is Richard Dawkins' memoir, An Appetite for Wonder. I was christened Clinton Richard Dawkins by a strange quirk. Charles Darwin also has the initials CRD. I often think how proud he would have been to share them with me. Although by reductio ad absurdum, everyone must be related to one another if you go back far enough, I propose to start this memoir with my grandfather, Clinton Evelyn, the first Dawkins to go to Balliol College, Oxford. The eulogy I wrote for his funeral still brings tears to my eyes. My father also went to Balliol. My mother, being of Cornish origin, didn't, though I have often wondered about the evolution of the Cornish dialect. Her father wrote a book, Shortwave Wireless Communication, which was legendary in our family for its incomprehensibility. But I have just read the first two pages and find myself delighted by its lucidity in comparison to my own. I was born in Nairobi in 1941 my father having been posted to Kenya by the colonial service. After several peripatetic years, my family returned to England, where I was sent to Chafin Grove, an unremarkable preparatory school, where I frequently pretended to know less than I actually did. This, I now see, was early evidence of my peculiar empathy towards individuals who are much stupider than me. There was, of course, life beyond Chafin Grove, and I spent many happy holidays sorting out my father's collection of coloured baler twine and serpentine pebble pendants. My father had intended me to follow him to Marlborough, but his application on my behalf was too late and I was rejected, a slight from which he never fully recovered, as I explained so movingly in my speech at his funeral. Instead, I went to Oundle Boarding School, and I shall never forget the shame I felt on my first day as a fag after ringing the five-minute bell five minutes too late. For my many thousands of American readers, I should point out that fag in this context does not mean homosexual. Of course, some boys did make advances towards me, but I firmly believe that there was nothing sexual about that. Likewise, Mr. G. F. Bankerton Banks, whose preferred method of teaching was with his hands in a boy's pockets. No doubt, in these more suspicious times, he would have been dismissed as a paedophile. Having taken up my anointed position at Balliol, I quickly became one of the most remarkable zoologists of my generation, and it was a surprise to find my work on chickens pecking at eggshells and crickets reacting to light sources didn't receive greater international acclaim. Not that Balliol was all work and no play. I did achieve my first sexual congress with a cellist, and it was most gratifying to discover how biomechanically efficient my penis was. I married my first wife, Marion, in 1967, though that's the last time I propose to mention her. Far more interesting 
are the two computer languages I invented to determine hierarchical embedment. In the early 1970s, I started work on the selfish gene. I had no idea, when I was writing the first chapter, just how remarkable the book would be, as it had seemed self-evident for more than a decade to me that Panglossian theories were erroneous and that natural selection took place at the genetic level. What I hadn't then realised was my remarkable ability to be right about absolutely everything. The consequences of that realisation will follow in a later volume, though you may be hoping a process of natural literary selection prevents that. That was an appetite for wonder digested by John Crace. With me in the studio to discuss it, a Guardian science writer, Ian Sample, and writer Andrew Brown, who's fallen on both sides of the science-religion divide, haven't you, in terms of your journalism, Andrew? Uh, painfully, yes. <laughs> Split right up the middle. Ian, tell us a little bit about Dawkins. What is his importance now? This memoir goes up to 1976, which is when he published his great book. One might question that, The Selfish Gene. This tells you something alone, I think. Appetite of Wonder is the first volume of his autobiography. It goes through a lot of Dawkins's past, his family. I mean, you know, if you're interested in what method that his great, great, great grandparents used to elope, you know, you find that sort of information in there. Um, so there is a lot of the family upbringing. And we know that a lot of this was very much scattered around the British Empire, you know, being brought up in Kenya and whatnot, then having some time in Caltech, coming to Oxford to do academic work there and, and his fascination with science as it grew and his disaffection with the British schooling system and all sorts of things like that. So it takes you up to this point where selfish gene has to be a, a, a fair sort of dividing line in, in his uh, sort of professional life, I would think. As you say, that was the book that really made his name, even though there were probably better books that he did after that. Andrew, how good a book is The Selfish Gene? Well, in one sense, it's very good indeed. It's a book which doesn't change how you think. It does much more than that. It changes how you see the world, which is a a more difficult feat and much closer to art. On the other hand, it's not, as people take it to be, a work of groundbreaking science. It's a work of synthesis, brilliant synthesis, of a set of ideas which were going around at that time, developed by other people, by Bob Trivers, by Bill Hamilton, by George Price. The marriage of game theory with biology was enormously productive and important, and Dawkins let you see how exciting it was. So what's, in a scientific sense, good in there was not new, and what's new, stuff, you know, memes, the droning on about faith, which starts even there, is no bloody good. But it is very, very well written. Ian, from your point of view as a scientist, is it terribly dated? Is it worth reading now? We have to be fair with something Andrew said about what's good in there isn't new. I mean, show me a science book where the information in it is particularly new because a lot of this information, that's what science books tend to do. They tend to synthesise material that is in the the more specialised literature. The worst science books, as I've ranted on this podcast before, don't even do that. They synthesise information that's gone into other science books, which is unforgivable. This was a book written in 1976. 
of course, a lot of the stuff in Selfish Gene now looks outdated. It's now been superseded by ideas which look more plausible, which look more complex. I mean, the Selfish Gene, all three of those words, you have to interpret fairly delicately to see them as being particularly true now. But then what is true? We don't know. There is an enormous debate ongoing now about how really the prominence of the gene in heritability. Is it the gene? Is it gene expression, which is more important? Do you get gene expression, which changes an organism, and then another gene mutation may lock in that behavior? Genes may follow rather than lead. So these ideas are still being kicked around. It's still controversial, and progress isn't particularly fast. But there's an awful lot of confusion over this. And I think what value selfish gene had in synthesizing all of this stuff is even if it may have seemed fairly Mendelian it drove home an idea you need to understand as a starting point from which you can then move on to understand the subtleties and the exceptions to the prominence of the gene inheritability. Andrew this is a memoir who would read it and what is the importance of Dawkins now? Who would read it are his devoted followers of whom there are clearly a very great many as you know if you write anything about him on the internet. What we learn from it, well, it's a very interesting example. Dawkins is somebody who's made the transition from being a member of the British imperial elite, which is where his family came from, to now a figure in the American imperial elite. I mean, a Microsoft um, squillionaire funded his, his chair at Oxford, and he's, he's revered all over Silicon Valley. Not many people made that transition, and it's not very good for your humility. One of the commenters in the original written version of this digested read said, why is Dawkins considered narcissistic and Attenborough a national treasure? They seem quite similar. Is that a fair comment? There's so many things that people bring to, to Dawkins. His approach is so radically different to Attenborough's. I mean, that's probably what is driving this. I mean, Richard Dawkins manages to get very many people's backs up. Who is ever offended by David Attenborough? Andrew, is there going to be, presumably there will be the next volume, which will deal with his gods phase or his anti-god phase? The anti-god stuff is present right from the very beginning. There is a quite gratuitous anti-God chapter in The Selfish Gene, for example. And when I was writing and thinking about the sociobiology controversies, which were all around the time of The Selfish Gene, I came to the conclusion that actually people didn't argue very much about the biology. If you read the, even the early Dawkins books carefully, you can see in the small print all the reasons why the, why the headlines are wrong. And this is actually a, a virtue in them. But what they argued about was, in fact, amongst other things, the role of religion and the, the belief held by the Dawkinsites, by the engineers, if you like, that there could be a kind of pure knowledge that lit up the world. It's a kind of Gnosticism, really. Their early opponents were mostly Marxists who were wrong about almost everything, but, of course, they were right to see knowledge embedded in power structures. They were right to see that science is a human enterprise with all the problems that that brings. The digested read digested, which is a little gobbit with which John finishes his book, is me, me, meme. Is that fair? Yes, I think it is. And uh, my view of that book is that it, it, it is a great Christmas gift if your, your name is Richard Dawkins. He is a huge fan of himself. Well, much food for thought there. An Appetite for Wonder by Richard Dawkins is published by Bantam, so if you're listening, Richard Dawkins, 
Now you know. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, drag-and-drop tools, and 24-7 support. Squarespace also offers seamless e-commerce solutions for you or your small business. Every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website, so your content will look brilliant on any device. Start your free trial today, no credit card required. As a Guardian podcast listener, you'll get 10% off your new account by using the offer code GUARDIAN. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.